I invite you to turn in uh, Paul's, or in the Bible, to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We have been um, looking at Paul's letter for a couple of months now, and uh, this morning we draw this series to a close. And so we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 10, and uh, we'll read through verse 20 this morning. Philippians 4, 10 to 20, page 1830 in your pew Bibles. Uh, next week, we will be uh, starting a new series. We'll be looking at the book of Daniel. There's more about that in your bulletins and in the note that uh, came to you in your emails this week. If you didn't get that, uh, please let me know or Paula know, and we'll try and catch you up to speed on what we'll be doing in the book of Daniel. But please be in prayer for, for that series as well. Let's read now Paul's letter to the Philippians. What's going on here? Uh, for those of you who haven't been with us, uh, Paul is in prison. Uh, we believe probably in prison in Rome. And uh, he has received a gift from the Philippian church through a person named Epaphroditus. And um, Paul is suffering. Uh, the church in Philippi, we have reason to believe, is suffering as well. And yet uh, they found it within themselves to reach out to Paul and to uh, reach out to his needs. And that's sort of the topic uh, that he concludes the letter on. We'll begin with verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying that because I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Yet, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, with the uh, Ryder Cup taking place just north of us this weekend, a game of golf has sort of been on my mind this week. There is not much in life that frustrates me as much as the game of golf. Um, you may not believe this, but growing up, I was a fairly decent athlete. Running and jumping came somewhat naturally to me. 
Hitting a golf ball never did and probably never will. Have you ever heard where the name Ryder Cup comes from? There were uh, three elderly golfers on the course. They walked into the pro shop after playing 18 holes. The pro asked, uh, so did you have a good game today? And the first man said, well, I had the most riders ever, five. His wife said, I had seven riders, the same as last time. Their friend said, I beat my old record. I had 12 riders today. After they had gone, another golfer who was in the pro shop went up to the pro and he said, you know, I've been playing golf for a long time. I thought I knew all the terminology, but what's a rider? And he said, oh, that's when you hit the ball far enough that you can actually get in the cart and drive to it. That's a rider. Now, just in case you're wondering, okay, if you know less about golf than I do, that's really not where the Ryder Cup gets its name. I have no idea where the Ryder Cup gets its name from. But that is a good measure of my golf game, how many riders I do or don't hit. It's usually not many. It's very frustrating. Golf is a reminder for me of of the futility of life. You try your best and you have nothing to show for it. Sometimes trying to satisfy people can be like that. No matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to satisfy them. No matter how straight you cut the lines in your lawn, they're never straight enough for your dad. No matter how many A's you get on your report card, your mom always finds something that isn't quite right. You can go 10 for 10 at the free throw line and your coach still tells you you've got the form of Giannis. You can work insane hours trying to complete that work project and when it's finally done, you present it to your boss and he says very little and just hands you two more projects to get working on. Sometimes it just seems impossible to satisfy the very people that we want to satisfy most. Have you ever found yourself thinking that about God? That He's just impossible to please. No matter how hard I try, I never seem to feel His smile. That all of my efforts just seem futile. I never seem to hit a good rider. Sometimes I think the Heidelberg Catechism can leave us with this impression. When, when discussing how we are saved by faith, question 62 asks this, why can't the good that we do make us right with God? And the answer comes back, because the righteousness which can pass God's scrutiny, and just listen to that word, his scrutiny, as if he's sort of looking for things that we might do wrong. Because the righteousness which can pass God's scrutiny must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. And then it says this, even the best we do in this life is imperfect and stained with sin. Even the best, the best that we do in this life is stained with sin. Question and answer eight can leave us with a similar impression. In discussing our sinful human nature, the catechism asks, But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good? 
The answer comes back, yes, we are. We're totally unable to do any good. That's how corrupt we are. Now, I'm not trying to beat up on the catechism this morning. I actually like the catechism. But some of us never get to the rest of that answer, which says, yes, we're totally unable to do any good unless, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Then everything changes. Unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. But if you're one of those people who has a hard time remembering that little word, unless, unless we are born again, and if your life seems to be mired in an attitude of even the best that we do is stained with sin, then I think we need to hear Philippians 4.18 again. Your gifts, writes Paul, are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God pleasing to God. Now, let's just take a moment and, and walk through that thought a little more slowly. First of all, for a little context, what's, what are the gifts that Paul is referring to? What's he talking about here? Well, it seems to be the case that the Philippians have been financial supporters of Paul and his ministry ever since he brought the gospel to them in that small town of Philippi. But lately, there's been a pause in their assistance, okay? Something's happened. Something's come between the Philippians and their gift. And so, obviously, that made Paul wonder what's going on, what's going on in their hearts, what's going on in their minds. For instance, if your mom tells you that she's going to pay for your college education, but suddenly the bills stop being paid, you kind of wonder what's going on here. And, and if the checks stop coming about the same time as your grades take a little dip, you're wondering if there's some kind of correlation, right? Has mom stopped giving because my grades have gone down? Well, Paul was in a similar circumstance. The gifts of the Philippians seem to stop coming about the same time that he finds himself in prison. So he had to wonder, did they really understand what this imprisonment was all about? Did they misunderstand why he was there? A bigger subject, did they misunderstand the gospel? Did they misunderstand what it was all about? That it's not all about, you know, success and fireworks and, and blue ribbons, but sometimes it's about, it's about suffering. And taking a beating, taking persecution so that the gospel can go out. So Paul's wondering, what's, what's going on? But now the physical care of the Philippians, it seems, has been, has been renewed. Epaphroditus has come through with a wonderful care package for Paul. And Paul uses the language of botany here in our text. He says, your care for me has blossomed again. Your care for me has blossomed again. In other words, he's realized that, that this pause is like, is like flowers, right? Flowers don't usually bloom all year round. There's, there's often a pause. No flower can bloom 100% of the time. And now things have started again. Paul realizes that these people remain partners with him 
in the, in the work of the gospel, that he's not alone in his suffering, that the Philippians are with him. And now here once again is the proof of that, their gift that's been given through Epaphroditus. And the important thing, he says, is not the gift itself. Rather, it's knowing that they are together in this partnership. Okay, the Philippians, Paul, Christ, they are a partnership together. That's the gift that Paul is referring to. But now look what he adds. This gift was obviously encouraging to Paul, right? And yet what Paul says is that ultimately it was pleasing to God. Ultimately it pleased God. The gift of the Philippians meant to encourage Paul to support the work of the gospel was a gift that was pleasing to God. So the question is, is it really impossible to please our God? Is it really impossible to make him smile? The answer is no, of course not. Of course it's not. For those who belong to Christ, for those who are born again by the Spirit of God, it is possible to please our God. But now we may be getting ahead of ourselves and we have to ask, why? Why are these gifts pleasing to God? Why is not every gift pleasing to God? The answer is that these gifts arise out of the mind of Christ. There's a certain form or shape to these gifts that were given. They arise out of the mind of Christ. Listen to the language that Paul uses here. <clears throat> they were a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. That's sacrificial language, isn't it? Who does that remind you of? Reminds you of Christ. And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the life of Christ. This is the shape of his life. And the giving of the Philippians resembles that shape. They have in them the mind of Christ, says Paul. And it's pleasing to God. If you think in the broader context here, right, you can't help but think of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You may not remember that specific text, but there is a place where Paul is raising funds for the Christians in Jerusalem, for the Jewish Christians. They're being persecuted. They probably are being kicked out of their jobs. They can't afford to feed themselves. They're hungry. And so what Paul does is he begins to go around to the Gentile churches that he's planted, and he actually asks these new Christians if, if they will give money, if they will support the church in Jerusalem. And the churches that come through in particular are the Macedonian churches. They're the churches in Philippi. And this is what Paul says about them. Out of their most severe trial and extreme poverty, their overflowing joy welled up in rich generosity. It was out of their poverty, out of their suffering, that they were able to bless others. That's where their gift came from. It was out of their poverty that they blessed others with riches. This is what we call, friends, the cruciform life. It's a life that takes the shape of the life of Jesus himself. The cruciform life is being willing to conform to Christ in his death so that we can attain the resurrection. 
Let me say that again. It's being conformed to Christ in His death so that we can attain the resurrection, His resurrection. Paul has again and again in this letter been calling us to that kind of life, to the cruciform life, to the life that takes on the shape of Jesus' life. He's been calling us to have in us the very mind of Christ, the mind of heaven, the mind of God, which continually gives Himself for others. The mind of Christ is a mind that is self-spending, self-spending love for the sake of others. And what Paul is saying here in Philippians 4 is, even in this little gift to me, I see the mind of Christ. You're doing it again. Just like you did for the church in Jerusalem, you are now doing for me. The mind of Christ is evident in you again and again and again. And so, Paul says, God is pleased with this. Not so much with the gift itself, but with the fact that you are putting the mind of Christ into action in your lives. How can we actually please God? How can we actually put a smile on the face of God? I want to be clear here. Outside of Christ, we cannot. And we cannot please God in the sense of earning our salvation, right? We can't make Him smile so much that He'll give us salvation. But once He's already given us that salvation in Christ, once we've already, already been renewed and born again by the Spirit of God, then we can begin to please Him. When we accept the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, when we ask God to apply to us all the events of the life of Christ, then those events begin to shape us and form us. They have to. There's no way they cannot. If they are not shaping you and not forming you, then you are not a child of those events. They don't belong to you. They don't have any power over you. But when you do belong to those events, the Spirit of God is in you and He will form you more and more into the shape of Christ. He will form your life into His life. He will put His mind in your mind. We do begin to live like Christ. We have that cruciform character to us. Self-spending love for the sake of others. That's how it's possible, friends, to please God. And whenever we live that out, even in some small capacity, whenever we live out the mind of Christ, God sees that. God is pleased. God smiles. God says, well done. Well done. And when he says, well done, on Tuesday, because he sees in you the mind of Christ, that's a well done that stands up on the day of Christ. Remember the very first sermon in this series was about the day of Christ and what shall stand up on that day. Those words will. Well done. Well done. And life is futile no longer.
Friends, Paul talks in this letter about contentment. In this, uh, in this chapter, actually, and I don't want to just skip over that. Because I believe the secret to contentment is actually having in you the mind of Christ. The secret of contentment is having in you that mind of Christ. Let's try and get at that as we close here. In verse 9, Paul says, Whatever you've learned from me, put it into practice. He's laying out himself as an example for the church. Whatever you've seen in me, whatever you've learned from me, put it into practice. And then a couple of verses later in verse 12, he says that he himself has learned the secret to being content. It is something we learn. Okay? It doesn't just fall from the sky on top of you. You learn to be content. Paul says, I've learned this. Now learn it from me. The secret of being content. So what does it mean actually to be content? What does that mean? Well, in a sense, I think it means to have peace. A peace that's beyond all understanding. We hear that from Paul, right? It's a peace that's, that's not linked to circumstance in particular, right? He says, peace in plenty, peace in want. To be content is to be satisfied, to be good with life, to be filled up. There's nothing lacking. That's what it is to be content. Content is the very opposite of what advertisers want you to be, right? And so they're always trying to point out some aspect of your life in which you are lacking or which at least you think you are lacking. And it's not really the consumables themselves that advertisers are trying to sell you. What they're selling you are things like meaning and purpose and relationship and love. And then they're saying, and if you happen to buy this product, that's what you'll find. Contentment. But we're not content, are we? And our discontent is exposed every time you buy that product. Every time you buy that car or that iPhone or the new couch or whatever it is, and then you realize that, hmm, that didn't do it. There's still something deeper inside of me. There's a hunger that wasn't satisfied. I don't have any rest. I don't have any peace. So what's the secret that Paul says that he learned? Well, Paul says that I have learned that underneath every one of my desires is a deeper desire. That underneath every one of my longings is a longing for something bigger. It's a longing for God. It's a longing for Christ. Underneath our desire for love is actually the desire for God's love. No other love is going to fulfill that desire. Underneath our desire to know is the desire to know God. Underneath our desire to be known is the desire to be known by God. 
And until we have that desire met, we'll never be satisfied. We'll never be content. What does Paul say? I want to know Christ. I want to know Him more. I want to know Him more. That's the secret to contentment. It's knowing the person who is the true object of all of our desires, of all of our longings. But now I want to take that just a step further. If you didn't notice in your first reading through this text, read it again sometime today. Read it in different translations, but there's, a lo- there's an awful lot of language here about giving and receiving. It's almost as if Paul is talking about if I give, you know, I should be getting back. That's not quite the idea, but there's a lot of talk here about giving and receiving, very business-like terms. The Philippians are giving, Paul is receiving. But Paul also gives. He gives in the form of the gospel, and the Philippians receive. But then God also gives, and Christ also gives. He gives and gives and gives, and we receive and we receive. That's the nature of God. That's the mind of Christ. Paul's been telling us us that all along, right? Giving and receiving, giving and receiving. There are... um, There's a sentence in the book of Acts that's actually attributed to the words of Jesus, but these words of Jesus are never found in the Gospels. They don't come out of the Gospels where we find all the words of Christ. Rather, Paul, in the book of Acts, chapter 20, he quotes Jesus, and he says, As our Lord has said, it's better to give than it is to receive. For some reason, that's stuck in Paul's mind. It's better to give than to receive. You know, we have a desire to know God. We have a desire to know God's love. And that's all stuff that we receive, isn't it? It's all stuff that we receive. But I would dare say that we also have a desire in us to give. We have a desire in us to give. For one, because he's given so much to us. We have in us, deep within us, a desire to please God. It's something we have to do. We're driven to do. It's something we're created with. The desire to work the earth cultivate it, to tend the creation, to rule it for God, and to do all of it in a way that pleases Him, that makes Him smile. We cut the lines nice and straight so that God is pleased. And I would argue that that desire has never gone away. And underneath our urge to work is the desire to serve God. And underneath our desire for purpose is the desire to see God smile. Underneath the desire to please parents and coaches and bosses is the desire to please God. And to hear Him say, well done. Well done, my faithful servant. That was a fragrant offering. 
to me. And friends, I think when you wake up in the morning and you know that you actually have the capacity today to put a smile on God's face, I think that's what it means to be content. And Paul says, I've learned how to do that. Nothing else matters. What I have doesn't matter. Where I live, prison, castles, doesn't matter. I've learned the secret to be content. I've learned how to put a smile on God's face. And how I do that is to live with the mind of Christ in me. To live with a a mind of self-spending love so that others might be lifted up. I've learned it. The Philippians have learned it. And Paul says, now I want you to learn it too. I want you to learn what it means to be content. I want you to be able to walk through life straight and tall and strong, not impacted by the circumstances around you because you are living in the strength of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And your faith is such that you know that because He gave Himself for you, your life can never be taken away. That He will receive the glory of His Father in full. And that because of His gift to you, you can live in that same way. You can have that same mind in you and the power of Jesus Christ in you to bless others in that same way. Sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's what we were created to do. And friends in Christ, we can. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, that's such an important word in the catechism. Unless, unless, we're unable to do anything good unless we've been born again by the Spirit of God. It's only by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, by His self-spending love, that we can be born again. But when we have been born again, Lord God, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with the mind of Christ that we may do the very good that you created us and redeemed us to do. Help us to live as Christ's people in this world. Undaunted by the threat of suffering undaunted by the threat of loss. May we live with the mind of Christ in us. And Lord, may your glory shine 
as a result. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.